Listener Production. Gidget Foundation Australia acknowledges the continuing connection to culture, lands, waterways and communities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And we pay our respects to traditional owners of country, both past and present, throughout Australia. This podcast contains conversations about suicide, loss, depression and anxiety that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help, don't hesitate. Contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or emergency services on triple zero. It took us six years to actually fall pregnant with Clara. Work hard, work out hard, party hard. Like everything was kind of done with high cortisol. When it came to her career, Chelsea was laser-focused on success. But in the few months after becoming a mother, her highly structured world began peeling away at the edges until finally she broke. I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm failing here. I can't be the mum, I can't be the good mate. I'm just going to remove myself from this planet. They're going to thank me for doing this. A picture-perfect journey into parenthood is what most of us hope for and plan for. So when that dream dissipates into sleepless nights and overwhelming exhaustion, parents are left blindsided under the pressure of unrealistic expectations. If you can pick it up earlier than what I had and be brave because you don't have to slip as far as what I had to get yourself to safety. Pregnancy and the first year of parenthood is a time of major change in a person's life that, without the right support, can lead to or prolong perinatal depression and anxiety. For too long, these parents have suffered in silence, but that doesn't have to be where the story ends. Hi, I'm Davina Smith, and in this podcast, we tell the silent truth of PNDA loudly, and we meet some of the one in five mothers and one in 10 fathers who've lived through it, ready to start talking. I'm Chelsea, and I'm one of the one in five mothers who have experienced perinatal depression and anxiety. Today, we'll be deep diving into what exactly is perinatal depression and anxiety, what it looks like, and the simple self-care practices you can start implementing today. And we have clinician Amelia Walker joining us later to break down the basics on how to start your journey to better mental health. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Davina. I'm going to steal the line from your book, which says, tell me a bit about yourself, not the LinkedIn version. (laughs) So for those people who are listening who I've never met before, I grew up in Albury as a country kid and I had a really good upbringing. I had parents that loved me. I was very secure in that. I've got very, very close relationships still with my mum and dad and my brother and sister. And I was really into sport. So I played basketball from a very young age with Lauren Jackson, who's now like this, that was the caliber of player I was playing up against. Wow. It was great, to be honest, being a country kid. And I think it really helped me as well when I moved to the big cities too, to still have my roots in the country. And what was the plan? Was it always to get married and have kids as part of that picture of growing up? Yeah, for sure. Like I always had a healthy role modeling from my parents and they loved each other. And so I always wanted to get married and have children. I was lucky. I, I met my husband when I was young. He's heaps hotter than me. And so 
that's a big call because you're pretty hot. <laughs> so I locked him in young. I thought, wow, I'm punching here. I better get this guy locked down. And that was a really beautiful relationship. My mum raised me very, very independently though. So I got offered a scholarship when I was 18 to go to Oklahoma to play in Division One basketball. That was a big move back then, coming from Albury, going over to the States to play. And I'd just fallen in love with Jay. And she said to me, hey, he'll be here when you get back in four years. This is your dream. This is your goals. I've raised you independently. You get over there. And so I did that. I got injured after the first year. So it's kind of like a bittersweet. One, my career was done with basketball, but two, I got to come back and be with this guy that I was just madly in love with. About 28, we decided, you know, let's start to try and have a baby. And I had a pretty high-stress job. At the time, I was doing 12-hour days as a medical device salesperson for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, I was drinking a lot of gin at <laughs> night. <laughs> That's how I took the edge off my stress back then. We all uh, have a vice. We stress. all have a vice. Yeah. Uh, you know, it'd be lots of coffee in the morning, triathlon training. Survival mode it for really a high was. achievers. It really was. It was like that, you know, work hard, work out hard, party hard. Like everything was kind of done with high cortisol. It took us six years to actually fall pregnant with Clara. It was an interesting journey because I just trusted that the process would happen. But it's not to say that every time that I didn't see that line on that pregnancy test that I was disappointed. And so six years down the track, we decided to go and to an IVF specialist. And she said, yeah, I think it's a good time for us to investigate this. I'm going on holidays do you want me to send you to someone else or do you want to wait for me for a couple of months? I said, you know what? I've waited for six years. I'll wait for you. Yep. And so when she went away, we actually fell pregnant when she was away. Wow. Which, it happens. Like, was it like a, the stress had lifted? It was like the stress moment. had lifted. I'd also changed my job. So I stepped out of that high stress job. And I was just so elated. I just could not believe that we're finally going to have a baby. And to feel that moment then that this baby is on the way mm. and you had done so much in your life up until that point, how did you treat pregnancy through that, that nine months? The first trimester was pretty intense, like I was pretty sick, but I didn't care. I was just so grateful that I was actually having this baby. I'm like, this is just amazing. And then the second trimester was awesome. I was feeling, got my energy back and I was feeling good and I was having some really wicked, crazy, horny dreams, really weird <laughs> in the second trimester. <laughs> Lucky Jay. <laughs> I know, but it wasn't about him. <laughs> so I was having a great time in the second trimester and then the final trimester was interesting because I was starting to, almost like starting to feel a little bit anxious, you know, and, and my sleep was starting to get impacted, but I was putting it down as this just must be a part of it. You know, a restless leg, I'm a bit uncomfortable, I was, you know, waking up at four in the morning and couldn't get back to sleep. And and so I just put that down to being a part of the journey, to be honest. And an important part of my story, I think as well, that the listeners should be aware of is that I had suffered anxiety pre-pregnancy. And so before falling pregnant, I'd had a couple of incidences. One was at the snow when I got knocked out by a snowboarder and I banged my head and I had a they call them vasovagals where you get knocked out and you kind of convulse to get blood back up to the brain. So it's pretty scary for everyone else watching it. And so that was one incident. And then the second incident was when I was walking down the stairs at our apartment and I fell down the stairs and I whacked the back of my head. And 
that trauma, you know, my brother and husband found me running down the stairs with this rubbish in my hands and I was just kind of just convulsing down the stairs, the poor things, watching that. I got taken to hospital and they did a lot of testing and everything kind of looked okay. But the very next day, being a type A high achiever, I went back to work, you know, driving to work, going underneath the harbour tunnel and had a panic attack. And that was the first time ever I had experienced panic attacks or anxiety. In the harbour tunnel. It was, it was horrendous. Debilitating, uh, I'd imagine. It was. I thought I was going to die. I had to pull the car over and the poor safety people watching the harbour tunnel because all they just saw was this SUV pull over and no one in the front driving seat. <laughs> so <laughs> down comes the emergency services and I'm just in the back of the car having an out-of-body experience and they got me home and I was in tears because I was really scared. I didn't really know what was happening We went and saw a psychologist. I saw my doctor and they referred me to a psychologist and they really helped with some gentle exposure, you know, driving back through the tunnel and the amount of laps I did through that tunnel. (laughs) The tolls. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) To get over that fear. But it's really interesting, Davina, because when I fell pregnant, I didn't even think to mention to my obstetrician or anyone about that previous experience. I was just too happy. I didn't even think that that anxiety would come back like a beast. So all the prep for the pregnancy, mental health was never on the radar? Never on the radar. I didn't even know about the Gidget Foundation. I didn't even know what perinatal anxiety and depression was. So you had Clara and you can actually pinpoint to the day where things started to unravel for you, can't mm. you? To be honest, my birth was, was really, I was one of the lucky ones. I had a beautiful birth. I had a C-section and it was beautiful and I had great music playing and it was just so much elation on that day and I remember that. The second day, there's a bit of a mismanagement with my medication for the C-section and so I got sort of double dosed with a painkiller and then I couldn't feel really anything. You know, instead of being in the hospital with a newborn, I should have been at a rave, you know, (laughs) dancing in a nightclub. (laughs) And uh, so I felt nothing. So Clara was on my breast for like the whole day. That really sent me back with the breastfeeding because my nipples were just so sore and bleeding and Day three, I desperately wanted to get out of the hospital and go to this hotel because I knew I could get a steak and a glass of champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Just the normal things that every pregnant woman wants after nine months. (laughs) So I pretended to everyone that I was okay. I told them I was mastering the breastfeeding. I think also being a type A personality, I was kind of used to achieving things and doing things in the right kind of way. And You wanted everyone to know that I'm all good. I'm amazing this. Absolutely. I'm nailing this pregnancy and, and this birthing thing. They send us down to the hotel. And I remember arriving at this apartment and we we're on the top floor and there's this balcony. And it's a beautiful view. And I thought, maybe I should just jump off this. Mm. And then I thought, why are you thinking that? That is so weird. Don't say anything to anyone. That is so bizarre. It must just be the hormones. So that night, the anxiety insomnia starts and I can't get to sleep. Jay's sleeping, Clara's sleeping, and I'm just kind of pacing this hotel room. The next day, there's more things that kind of started to, I guess, unravel for me. I started getting a little bit more anxious, didn't mention anything Mm. to anyone because I thought, this will just pass. This must be like a little bit of hormones. Hormones. The baby blues. Maybe that's what that is. Day three, you'll be right. Day three, you'll be right. And so we pack up and head home. 
my anxiety is just kind of through the roof. Just the littlest things, you know, Clara hasn't done a poo for a day. So I'm there with, you know, bicycle legs, just trying <laughs> to get a poo out of her. And I was really lucky because I had my mum. She's like my soulmate. I just love my mum so much. And I was, again, really lucky because I, A, I had her come down and live with us for the first six weeks. And Jay is the most supportive, loving husband in the world. So I had the support there. Poor mum, like she was just she's such a positive person. So she's just trying to say the things that she You'll thought. You'll be right. It'll be You'll okay. You'll be right. You'll be okay that she thought was going to help me. And she was a very healthy distraction, actually, because six weeks then she left and she had to go back home, sadly. What was that like? <laughs> I was devastated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jay was at work and I was alone with the baby in the house where we lived in, in Sydney the cars on the street were sounding like there was like this freight train coming into my bedroom. So I was getting very, very vigilant to sound. I'd read so much around breastfeeding and and then when I couldn't nail that either, I felt like a real disappointment. Like the one thing that your body and your your mind is meant to be able to do to keep this baby alive. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't do it. I kept seeing then Clara as the source of the pain. Jay would bring her for a feed and I'd be like... <gasps> And I'd get really nervous about it. And then I'd feed her in so much pain and like, okay, take her away, take her away. And so it was really impacting our our bond as well. And then I remember saying to Jay, I'm going to run away unless you let me bottle feed her. Which there's nothing wrong with. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can't tell who's been vaginally birthed, who's been C-sectioned, who's breastfed, who's bottle fed. I mean, there's just so much pressure that we put on yeah. ourselves and other But in women. your head as well, you were like, I want to tick every box and do everything right. I was exactly the same. Yeah. You know, and when people would come over and say, you know, you're doing so well and I'd be like, oh, thank you. You know, I'd be all dressed up and... Bluffing. But, <laughs> bluffing. But underneath it all, I was just spiralling so fast. So Clara's now on the bottle, you know, I thought fantastic. And then I went to see the doctor because I wasn't sleeping well and... It's the first time I'd been exposed to the DAS score, so the depression and anxiety mm. score that they do to see how you're travelling. I lied. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Because you wanted everyone to know you were okay. That I was okay. And, and that was, you were acing this. Yeah, and I was also worried, what happens if they took Clara away from me? Mm. The one thing I was honest about was not sleeping. And at that stage, you know, the locum doctor, my doctor was away. And so this locum doctor's like, well, you need to get some sleep, so let's give you a sleeping pill for tonight. And I said, okay. And so I took that sleeping pill that night. Oh, that first night. <laughs> oh, and it was like five hours of blissful sleep. <laughs> and I'm like, hello, lover. Yeah. Where have you been all my life? I'm laughing because I've been there as well. And I know exactly what it's like. <laughs> it's actually not quality sleep. It's no. just that you get knocked out. Yeah. I didn't realise how addictive sleeping pills were. And I thought, maybe that's just all I need is sleeping pills. It wasn't fixing the problem And then I was still crying every day. I was slipping further. And nine weeks down the track after Clara was born, one of my best friends was getting married in Scotland. And at this stage, I was taking like three sleeping pills, hardly sleeping. I was just a royal hot mess. Mm. And I thought, if I can get to Scotland, I can fix myself. I can get away from the problem. I can get over there, get back into my health, come back and be the mother that I'm meant to be. Then... That'll fix everything. That's going to fix everything. Packed up everything, driving to the the airport, and I have, again, like one of those massive panic attacks. Mm. And so I've pulled the car over because I can't even get myself to the airport. And I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, 
like I'm failing here at everything. I can't be the mum. I can't be the good mate. I pulled the car over and after, you know, getting through that panic attack, I, I was looking on my phone going, that's it. I'm just going to remove myself from this planet. And so I was looking at ways, you know, what's the most effective way to end my life? It's going to have the least impact, you know, on the people that I love and because they're going to thank me for doing this. I mean, how messed up is that? And it's this weird thing where you feel like you're kind of reassured that you now have a solution out of the, mm. out of the demons going on inside your mind. And I remember this beautiful quote I read about suicidal ideation once and it's they're talking about it as like a burning building there's a person standing on the ledge at the top of the burning building and it's not like that they want to jump off but the flames inside are so great that the less of the pain is actually the jump and I couldn't understand that until I actually had witnessed it myself and so I was in the car and going okay I've got the answer before I do this I better go home and write my daughter a letter and my husband. And they were meant to be at the South Coast. They weren't meant to be at home. And so I was driving home and because now I had an answer, I was thinking, oh, they're going to be really grateful. Like they'll be sad at the start. Then Jay's going to marry this beautiful Brazilian woman. Like I had this full vision of where this is going to end up. You were fixing everything. I was fixing the problem. And I thought, wow, they're going to be so grateful. I get home and I'm walking through the front door and Jay's there. Wow. And he's, he's not, meant not to supposed be there. to be there. <laughs> he's not meant to be there. And he's like, darling, what are you what are you doing back here? Are you doing okay? Because he could just tell. That was the first time I could actually take the mask off and be really honest with him. And I said to him, you know what, darling, I'm I'm not doing okay. I think life is gonna be better off without me, not here. I actually came home to write you a letter to let you know that I was ending my life. I promise you, you can't see it right now, but you're going to be better off without a wife like me in your life. Clara's going to be better off without a mother like me in her life. I'm a burden to you guys. You know, you'll thank me. And the look on my husband's face, he just did this, he just burst into tears. And he's like, darling, you know, life is not better without you not here. We need you. You know, Clara needs you as a mum. I need you as my wife. Let's get your professional help straight away. I'm not going anywhere. And just knowing that he could hold that space and take action. Because I think that's the thing, you know, when you're unwell like that, like really clinically unwell, you don't know what to do. And you need someone, right, in your life that loves you to go, hey, I've got you. And I'm going to take you to safety. And I was really lucky because my cousin is an amazing psychiatrist who now specialises in perinatal anxiety and depression. And so we called her and Genevieve's like, oh my gosh, you are suffering severe postnatal depression. We need to get you straight away into hospital. And I said to her, do you think I'll get better? Do you think I can survive this? And she's like, I promise you, I promise you, you'll get your old self back. We just need to get the experts around you. Before I got admitted into St. John of God, which I just am so grateful to that place because it honestly saved my life, just had to go see the GP to get a referral in. And they said, can you just have a quick chat to the psychologist before you go in and, and bless this beautiful psychologist. 
she was um, just out of school, just out of university. And I was there explaining to her kind of where my headspace was at. She said to me, oh, have you tried a mindful shower? <laughs> <laughs> I've been through all of this oh. and you want me to shower. <laughs> and I said to her, I am so far gone <laughs> from a mindful shower. <laughs> it makes me laugh now, but I just think, you know, for the people that are listening, if you're aware I, I was in that trench, that's why the Gidget Foundation is just so critical because... They've got really amazing experts, psychologists and psychiatrists that actually specialise in this space. Mm. If people aren't hearing you where you're at, do not give up. Like, make sure you go and see someone who can hear what you're saying. And so being admitted into that unit on day one was the first step in me healing from the, from the postnatal depression. You're crying tears when you're looking back on that. Mm. I cry tears of pride because I know it's such a similar story to what I went through and to know that you can get out the other side is is so powerful and Mm. so reassuring to people. But in that moment of of real rawness, you were so brave to finally say, I'm not okay. And you thought being brave was putting on the brave face up until that point and fooling everybody and that that was strength. But strength in that moment was actually saying to Jay, I'm not okay. And that was the moment that saved your life, wasn't it? Absolutely. And I feel like for the listeners, if you can pick it up earlier than where I had Mm. and be brave and make sure you tell the right person because you don't have to slip as far as what I had to get yourself to safety. And I think, you know, being aware of the signs and symptoms is such an important thing, being educated and empowered to know what to look out for mums and dads out there, to also look out for your partner, going, hang on a second, there's some evidence here and I'm noticing that, you know, you're not sleeping well or you're withdrawing socially or whatever that it looks like. And you're right, Davina, the bravest thing you can do is to ask for help. Your recovery, you are such a high achiever, you're a competitive person as well. It almost became a, a competition to make yourself recover as quickly as possible and do everything right. And, and, and you did that, didn't you? You had organic food delivered to the hospital, <laughs> which high five because the hospital food must have been crap anyway. So, <laughs> Yeah, much to the uh, director of nursing's uh, <laughs> disappointment. I was a bit of a rogue patient in that hospital unit. And but you wanted to get better. A hundred percent. As soon as someone told me that, that I could recover. And another huge thing, I think, is finding these hope stories and success stories because in that first week, someone dropped me off Jessica Rowe's book. And reading her book, I thought, wow, if someone as magnificent as Jessica Rowe could go through what I've been through or what I'm currently going through and she's fully recovered, then there's hope for me. I think also being in that unit, you're around other parents who are going through the exact same stuff as you. So you don't need to bluff, do you? You don't need to bluff. You kind of have this connection where you bond with each other over these really bizarre stories. And stories that you can't say out loud to anyone else sometimes. Yeah, that's right. And they get it. You know, like you're there thinking you're the craziest person. They're there thinking they're the craziest person. (laughs) (laughs) You're always having a crazy off in the hospital. (laughs) And I'm still very good friends with some of those women in there because it's almost like you are with a tribe of people who really get you and you recover together. Your relationship with Clara also 
developed in that time as well because you said that you saw her as a source of pain with the breastfeeding. Mm. You struggled to connect with her. How did you develop that bond with her? Because she was with you in hospital, wasn't she? Yeah, as much as I didn't want her there, <laughs> which is terrible. No. But I just wanted her, I just wanted to get better. Yeah. And I couldn't sleep properly with her there crying. And so I'm like, can't I have her for the five weeks? And the psychiatrist's like, absolutely not. Mm. <laughs> There's some bonding issues here and we will get through that. How did you get through that? Yeah, it was like, you know, they taught me about mirror neuron therapy. And it's this whole sort of fake it till you make it kind of thing while I was recovering and singing to her and massaging her and bathing her because I was petrified that this would screw her up. I was saying to my doctors, is she going to be messed up for the rest of her life? <laughs> and they're like, absolutely not. But let's get onto it straight away so you can start enjoying this experience as soon as possible. And I remember like two weeks in when my psychiatrist got me on the right medication as well and I was seeing the psychologist and I was starting to recover, I just remember this moment of looking in Clara's eyes going, I'll die for you. I love you so much. I'll never leave you. You're like my, just my little soulmate. And that's where everything turned around. And she is. She is my soulmate. She's like my best mate. I take her everywhere. She's so happy. She's so unaffected by that experience which I think is really reassuring as well for parents listening. They're going to be okay. Don't feel like because you're not well that they're going to not be okay. That's why it's so important you get yourself well so quickly so you can actually enjoy that phase. So you had medication therapy as well. What else helped in those very early days to recover outside Uh, of the hospital experience? A couple of things. My psychiatrist was just such an amazing human being. She taught me to meditate. And that was hard, right, at the start because when you're unwell, you've got lots of dark thoughts and lots of them. And so she just let me begin with a minute every day and that was really game-changing for me. I had friends come and visit me every single day and I think that's a huge important thing for people to invest always in your connections and in your friendships because when you go through a trench like that, they're the people that turn up. So that was really helpful, connections. It was meditation. It was exercising every day, like at the start, because I had such severe insomnia and I couldn't sleep. I had so much. It was almost like the adrenaline pumping through my system. I reckon I could have lit up the whole of Sydney, like mm. through this, just this chemical I was producing. And so my psychiatrist like, I want you to go to the gym and I want you to cycle on the bike till you almost fall off. She's <laughs> <laughs> <So, laughs> like, we need to dump this out. Mm. Let's get it out of the system. And so movement was huge. And then really working on my sleep hygiene. So she was giving me really practical ways for me to get back to sleep if I woke up and to get myself off to sleep. So instead of being on my screen, I actually went off all socials for five weeks while I recovered in that hospital. And so reading a nice book at night time, unwinding properly, meditating. And these are still all practices I have till this day because you know, once your mental illness has been triggered, this is a lifelong journey and I'm aware of that. And so I do everything in my power to stay really well. And it's kind of those pillars in your life, isn't it? It's eating well, it's sleeping well, it's exercising, some kind of stress management tool, it's connection, it's kind of some kind of spiritual well-being, and it's medication for me too. And that keeps me functioning at the same level as every other human being. Like we don't ever say to someone with a broken leg, hey, just walk it off. It's all in that leg. <laughs> but we say to someone with, you know, with a, a mental sort of illness injury, 
just shake it off. It's all in your head. Just think happy thoughts. Yeah. I'm like, it is in their head. (laughs) (laughs) It's like an organ. We need to get that better and, and, and recover. And this has been a game-changing experience for you for the better because it's, it's changed the direction of your life and, and what you do for a living. It's changed everything. And when I left that hospital, my psychiatrist, is, she said to me, I think you should spend some time at the Nan Tin Temple when you move out of Sydney down to Jeringong and learn about loving kindness, compassion, meditation. Like, what a legend of a psychiatrist. Wow. And I remember I was there down there at the Nan Tin Temple and one of the Buddhist monks said to me, you realise, Chelsea, you had to go through what you went through to get to this other site, to get to your true calling. Without that, you wouldn't be on this new path. That was such wise advice. And it was my psychiatrist also that said to me, you know, when I was leaving, she's like, why don't you change your career path? She's like, you're such a lovely person and you're really fascinated about your brain and you've walked through the issues of a very unwell patient. I think you'd be a really lovely psychologist. Like, why don't you go back and retrain? And I thought, oh, okay. (laughs) Sure, I'll do that. (laughs) But it also makes you realise that it's through the challenges in life. This is where the grit actually lies. This is what builds up our resilience. You know, thanks to having postnatal depression, I can pretty much handle nearly everything in my life. I can handle a pandemic. I can handle a lot of things. And I know they're going to be okay because nothing so far in my life has been worse than waking up in a psych ward after giving birth to Clara. And I think that's a really empowering thing is that we're all going to face challenges in this life. We're all going to have hard times. It's it's actually an inevitable part of this journey. But I think if people can remember that, it's in these challenges, it's in these really tough times, that's the greatest opportunity for us to grow as, as human beings. Part of that involves having mental strength and it's a bit like physical strength, isn't it? You can't just walk out the door and run a marathon. You have to train for that. Mm-hmm. And mental strength is every day practicing meditation, exercising. But for a new parent, you can struggle to justify that time though sometimes, can't you? Why is it so important as a new mum, as a new dad, despite how guilty you feel about it, to go outside and to walk alone and to spend five minutes meditating? I'm going to reference again my psychiatrist. She said to me, if you get unwell again, who does it impact? I'm like, well, it impacts me for sure. And she said, and who else? I said, what impacts my daughter and my husband? And she said, do they deserve an anxious, stressed out, burnt out mother? I'm like, no. Mm. If you cannot get yourself across the line to take care of your mental well-being or physical health every day, I want you to think about someone that you love in your life more than yourself. And I want you to do it for them. So for the busy parents that are listening, I get that, right? I've got a very full schedule too. However, If we do not invest in it, whether it's just like a couple minutes in the morning where you go for a walk or where you just take a one minute breath work or you just have a full meal and not eat the kids scraps (laughs) (laughs) or you take your meds or you wash your face and you do these little rituals for yourself, that right there, your child is getting the best version of you. And that is so powerful. What is EQ Minds? So EQ Minds. It stands for emotional quotient because I feel like IQ only takes us so far and I think as human beings we really need to have strong EQ. In 2016, I set up EQ Minds with the mission to empower people to take care of their mental health because, to be honest, Davina, I never, ever wanted anyone ever to end up where I had. To date, we've trained about a million people across the globe with mental health and mindfulness and 
tips to, to keep them thriving. And every day it gives me so much joy. We see a lot of people, but whenever I go into an audience, whether it's 5,000 people or there's eight people in a room, I always just think, if I help one person in here, what a successful day. You say, help one person. And this is where I'm going to cry because when I heard your story many years ago, it was what stopped me and sat there and thought, yeah, I need to get help because it's, I'm not right. And the power of, I'm not going to cry, but the power of, of speaking up when we think staying quiet is the right thing to do, when actually speaking up and telling a story, that saves lives and that helps people. And there's so much bravery and strength in that, isn't there? Thanks for sharing that with me. I didn't know that, but that's, you know, that makes, that makes my story worth it. So if people want to access EQ Minds and find out more information, where can they head? So to our website at eqminds.com. If you're on social media at EQ Minds, our Instagram handle has got so many tips and tools up there every single day. And Chelsea Pottinger is my name. And we've got a book out there called The Mindful High Performer, which is about my personal story and really practical tips and tools to keep people well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Chelsea's story is what so many parents face. Program clinician at the Gidget Foundation Australia, Amelia Walker, joins us now to discuss how to identify PNDA, how to ask for help and how parents can plan appropriately for parenthood. Amelia, welcome. First up, can we talk about what PNDA is? PNDA stands for Perinatal Depression and Anxiety and it's a mental health condition and we look at the perinatal period because we we realise now that depression and anxiety can impact a new or expectant parent from around the time of conception right through those first 12 months and sometimes a little longer as well. The symptoms are really broad but what are some of the things that people should be looking out for? I like to sort of think about the symptoms showing up in slightly different ways because we listen to our bodies in different ways. So we might notice physical symptoms like sweaty palms, racing heart, heart palpitations. You might notice that you've got a headache that just won't budge. So we've got these sort of physical symptoms, but we might also notice that our behaviour or our loved one just might have changed a bit, like they're less willing to do things that once used to give them pleasure or more inclined to sort of stay at home or be more motivated to stick to a really rigid routine. And then we want to sort of look at maybe what's happening in our minds, like what sort of thoughts might be coming to us. So we might be consumed with thoughts of real worry, maybe feelings and thoughts about not being good enough, needing to get things right, and sometimes really, really difficult thoughts that can be really intrusive and quite distressing. Another factor that we might want to look at would be our feelings. So we might notice in ourselves or someone that we love that there's a lot of tearfulness or feelings of guilt, worthlessness, feeling really low that might manifest as well in sort of low energy. And anyone can get PNDA, any mother, any father. I used to think that you used to have to have a a significant major trauma in your vent or a major life moment that triggers you into this. But as we heard from Chelsea, you can have all the support in the world. Everything can be going right in terms of that family unit and you can still get PNDA. 
Yes, we know that PNDA does not discriminate. So it doesn't matter what our socioeconomic status is, our level of education, the sorts of supports that are around us. We might be a first-time parent or we might be having our fourth child and it might be the first time we experience PNDA and it can impact birthing and non-birthing parents. How does someone distinguish between the baby blues, which we hear so much about, and the day three, you're going to be flat, and hormones and PNDA? It's a really good question and a really important one because I think in our languaging and when we're leaving the hospital, we're told about the baby blues, you know, between day three and day 10, there might be a really big shift in hormones and ideally that responds to a bit of extra nurturing, a bit of extra support, and that should sort of shift. But what we're not told about as frequently is that if those sorts of feelings go on for longer and we sort of look at sort of a prolonged period of time of say two weeks or more, with a combination of some of the symptoms that I've mentioned, then that's where a diagnosis of PNDA might be used. Chelsea spoke about these intrusive thoughts of just suddenly coming out of the blue and and something that she had never really thought about or experienced before. That can be quite common too, can't it? It can. Intrusive thoughts actually impact 80% of new and expectant parents. And I think for anyone who experiences that, to know how common it is can help diffuse some of the shame that can build up around those thoughts. And we also know that by naming the thought and by sharing it, we're also able to kind of diminish those additional anxieties that sit around these disturbing thoughts. I think it's also really important to know that these thoughts, as common as they are and as terrifying as they are, if we're disturbed by them, it's less likely that we're going to enact on them. So it's actually a protective factor to feel that disturbance and that disturbance is what we want to listen to and then share maybe with someone that we trust. Chelsea spoke about the bond with a baby and again I I relate so much to that because um, I saw this beautiful child in front of me and everyone was gushing and madly in love with her but I couldn't connect and there was this lovely analogy that she shared that the one thing that did work in terms of faking it was I'll sing to my baby, I'll smile to my baby and I'll, I'll have all these feelings and emotions and I'll pretend and that will lead to a connection. It's, it's a really strange analogy and yet it, it does work, doesn't it, in practice? It does work and I think that's what we can sort of experience even when we go and see a mental health professional because what we're experiencing is someone sort of holding the space and mirroring back maybe what we might be feeling as well. And that's exactly what happens in that parental-infant relationship, taking moments where we can, as difficult as it may feel, to just look at our baby and maybe just stroke their cheek and just notice what might happen on their face. And without any effort, naturally we too will make some sort of change and then they're responding to that can be the the most simple ways of connecting, especially when we're finding it really, really difficult. Chelsea's experience, it, it took her right to that very edge and that sliding doors moment where it could have ended so terribly and thank God it didn't. How do we not get that far down the track? Where do we step in? When do we ask for help? What a moment for her to walk in mm. and for her husband to be there. One of the things I really noticed, I guess, about Chelsea's story is that we're hearing from a woman who was a high achiever, is a high achiever, Mm. A-type personality as she's described herself. She has it all together. And sometimes partners and loved ones of people with those characteristics 
will find it more difficult to see the chinks because they're so used to that person holding everything up. So I think as we go into the parenting journey, it's about talking with our partners and starting conversations quite early. And so someone with a type A personality might find it more difficult to start reaching out or even to be seen to be having difficulties. But if we can start those conversations early with our partner or our loved one, then we open things up for when things do become more difficult. And after that conversation with that loved one, with the partner or a parent or a friend, from there, going to your GP and having a discussion doesn't hurt either. Absolutely. Having a good relationship with a GP is a really important thing. So a GP can write a referral and a mental health care plan to the Gidget Foundation and we have specialists in perinatal care who can support anyone who needs it. What other treatments are available for people suffering PNDA? Well, we've heard from Chelsea's story that when things become really quite acute, then we've got this sort of inpatient option. And so places like St John of God or mother baby units are a really important place for some people to go to. Psychiatrists, of course, and medication can be a really important factor of treatment. And then when things aren't quite that acute, we'd be looking at a consistent sort of relationship with a psychologist can be very helpful. But also I think we look at treatment as being quite a medical term, I guess, but I loved Chelsea's description of her psychiatrist because what a holistic view they brought. So she was really being able to sort of add into her treatment, connecting spiritually in mindful ways, meditation, all these other elements that can be so impactful as well. Chelsea is proof, like everyone who's part of this podcast, that you can get better. Her story was profound to hear and will be hopefully very impactful for people who are in the midst of any mental health challenges. PNDA is temporary and treatable. Early intervention is a really key factor where possible. As her beautiful cousin said to her, you will get better. You will get better. You're going to find yourself again. Amelia, thank you. Thank you so much, Davina. This podcast is a listener production made in partnership with Gidget Foundation Australia. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with audio production from Kelly Falston. Listener.